Amen. All right. Well, welcome to discipleship class number six. We've got a good group in the room expecting a few more uh, to join us and welcome to everyone online. This is class uh, number six and tonight we're going to be talking about two different but in, in, in many ways different but in many ways related subjects. Um, visible signs and the ministry of reconciliation. Visible signs and the ministry of reconciliation. And, um, and again, we put these titles, I'm not trying to be uh, creative or poetic, I'm trying to be informative, so that should you ever go, you know, what was that class we talked about visible signs? Well, you can look through the, uh, the video archives and voila, there it is. So um, maybe that will uh, help uh, someone as well, but also kind of give you a little insight into where uh, we're headed uh, together. Praise God. All right, well, um, let's, uh, let's pray and, and we'll get started. Father, uh, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We recognize that you are our creator. You are the uncreated one who created us. You created us to know you, to be loved by you, and to love you. And Lord, I thank you uh, that as we come before you today, we come, Lord, uh, hungering and thirsting for uh, righteousness and for your ways of being and doing right. I thank you, Lord, for revealing your truth and your wisdom to us. Lord, hidden things, mysteries, secrets, Father, things that have been hidden from the foundations of the world that you're now freely revealing to those, Lord, who have a ready heart to hear and receive them. Lord, I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you that he is in us, he is among us, and he is upon us tonight. Lord, enabling us to hear and to receive things, Lord God, that you're bringing forth from your heart to ours. Lord, I thank you that he speaks to us and we acknowledge him and yield to him tonight as our teacher. We thank you, Jesus, that you sent him to lead us and guide us into all truth. And Father, we know that it's your truth and greater measures of it that enable us to walk and live in the life that you created us to live in. Father, thank you for good things tonight. Thank you for those that are online, those that are here with us in the room, for the families and loved ones they represent. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. <coughs> Excuse me. So let's, um, let's begin with just a little bit of uh, a review tonight. Uh, some of the things that we covered last week was that an eternal God created you and me for an eternal purpose. Remember, God is uncreated. He has always been and He will always be. We came along uh, long after the party had, had started, so to speak. And this um, God that is an eternal community created you and me to be a part of their community. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. When we say an eternal God created you for an eternal purpose... If you look at where the Bible begins uh, in the Garden of Eden, and if you look at where the Bible essentially ends at a wedding feast, and we are the bride, it gives you some idea of what the overall story is about. Now, I know sometimes it makes men a little uncomfortable to be referred to as a bride, okay? Uh, but we also see another um, uh, uh, example or, or representative uh uh, part, if you will, of, of what this story is all about. And it's Jesus as the head and you and me as the individual members of his body. So what began in a garden that ends at a wedding feast is about a bride for the son. It's about a body fit for the head. Amen. And when I say God has an eternal purpose for you, I'm not trying to like freak you out because obviously we're trying to just get through today and do what God's called us to do today. But his plans for you and me started before we were formed in our mother's wombs 
and they continue long after um, we leave this earth <laughs> behind for what our Father has uh, next. And I tell you that not to scare you, but just to let you know that God's got you, He loves you, and um, our, uh, our lives are important to Him uh, for a lot more reasons than maybe you understand up unto this, uh, in this moment in time or this point um, in time. Last week we also said that, that you are Generation Christ. And I'm not going to try to go back and review all that, but we see where God's desire was to have a nation of priests and Israel originally turned down his offer. But as I said last week, I'll say again now, when Father God sets his heart on something, it doesn't matter how long it takes or how much it costs, he's going to see it through to fulfillment and to completion. And so we see now that as born again believers, we are that royal priesthood. We are that holy nation. We are that special people to him uh, that are here in um, the earth. We said uh, last week and even I think the end of class four that every born again believer has been called to do the work of the ministry. Every born again believer has been called to do the work of the ministry. The uh, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher are certain ministry roles, offices if you will that God has established and the men and women who fill those individual uh, offices uh, are ordered by God or are instructed by God, equipped by God to uh, get everybody else equipped and ready to do the work of the ministry. At the end of um, last class, we said a giant step towards maturity is when you move beyond yourself and serve someone else, that you will never grow and develop until you take this step. And so is the case in our physical growth and development. If, if we never get out beyond ourselves to do something for somebody else, it's going to set a limit or a ceiling on our development, our maturity as a, as a person, our growth as a person. And so with that said, ministering to others then is necessary for spiritual growth and development. You, you can never grow up into the things, into the person that God made you and intends for you to be if you never take the step of reaching out to and ministering to other people. Okay, And then the last thing we looked at is that we see from John 17 where Jesus says that we're in this world, but we're not of this world. We're, we're in this world, but we are not of it. Now, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and we're going to take some time to um, introduce or reintroduce you to the first 13 verses of, um, of John chapter 3. Now, John chapter 3 contains what is arguably the most uh, popular verse in the Bible. That would be um, verse number 16. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, whosoever believed in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so I'm thankful that people know that verse and are familiar with that verse. But really, um, that verse is, um, is one of a whole, whole bunch of very, very important and critical verses in this third chapter of John. Now, we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we see that those four Gospels are eyewitness testimonies of the life and teachings of Jesus. And we see that each one of those Gospels are written from a slightly different perspective with John's gospel being the, the most uh, different the, than the other three. To give you some idea of what I'm talking about, Luke um, was a physician. He was a medical doctor. And so you'll find more details about physical healing in Luke's gospel than you will the others because of his medical background. John 
was the disciple who was the closest to Jesus. And at the end of Jesus' ministry, we see John literally reclining on Jesus, okay? Um, and, and you think, well, gosh, you know, was he a soft man? Was he this? Was he that? No, he was, his nickname was a son of thunder, okay? But what we see that I believe set John apart more than any uh, of the other disciples of Jesus was his understanding of the love that God had for him. If you compare, uh, and, and, and a lot of people, you know, talk about, well, Peter, what about Peter? Peter was awesome and still is, and thank God for him, okay? But at least in these days of their, of their development, we see where Peter talked more about his love for Jesus, John talked more about Jesus' love for him. <laughs> Do you see the difference there, right? Peter was always, I love you, I'll die for you, all this for you, all that for you, you know? And, and, and his confidence and faith, at least in this part of his growth and development, rested more upon his love for Jesus than his understanding of Jesus' love for him. Listen, we're to love God. Don't misunderstand me. I hope you do. I believe you do. You wouldn't be here if you didn't, okay? But when you stand before him one day, it's not going to be about how much you loved him and what you did for him. Uh, at least I hope that's not what you rely upon on that day. But instead, it's how much he loves you and what he's done for you. Amen? And the more we understand his love, perfect love, love perfected, love full circle, the Bible says, cast out all fear. And one of the things that we see about John, for example, is um, they actually tried to execute him and couldn't. And they couldn't kill him because he didn't have any fear. They tried to boil him alive in oil and, and couldn't. Okay, And so they exiled him to the Isle of Patmos, which was literally a, a deserted island prison. Uh, there was no guards there. There was no three meals a day and all that stuff. They just basically threw you out of the boat and if you made it to shore... Uh, then, you know, you live there until you died on the Isle of Patmos. And the Bible says what? He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day on the Isle of Patmos, and that's where we get the book of Revelation. Right? So this tells you something about uh, the Apostle John. And so John is the only one who recorded Jesus' uh, conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And it's in this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus that we have these famous words, um, for God so loved the world that gave his only begotten son. But let's begin at verse number one. Now, I'll just go ahead and tell you, we, we could take two classes on this. We will circle back around to uh, John uh, chapter three uh, when we uh, do the classes on uh, understanding salvation and the new birth. Uh, because obviously there's a lot that's mentioned here about that. Uh, but we'll also touch on it uh, briefly anyway um, tonight. So um, let's begin at verse number one. It says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, let's, um, let's stop here for uh, just a moment, okay? Let's talk, first of all, about a Pharisee. What is a Pharisee? Well, in the Jewish religion, um, there were three, um, and so I'm going to spell the word for you, S-E-C-T-S, three sects or divisions. Um, we may, in Christianity, refer to them as denominations. It's not exactly what it was, but again, three different uh, approaches to the practicing of the Jewish religion, also known as Judaism. Okay, and those three uh, divisions were the um, Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes. E S S E N E S. Okay, uh, I'm just mentioning this because I, 
it'll help you if you understand what a Pharisee is, it'll help you understand, I think, a little better where Nicodemus is coming from and why he's asking the questions that he is asking. Now, the Sadducees were the wealthier of, um, of the group, and we see this in, in Christianity. I won't start naming off uh, denominations, but there are some denominations that are known for, you know, the doctors and the lawyers and, and the property owners and the businessmen and the multi-zillionaires and that sort of thing, okay? And so that, that would have been the Sadducees. The, the big deal with the Sadducees and, and, the, and the key things that, that they differed in, in their belief uh, from the Pharisees is that the Sadducees did not believe in the supernatural. They did, they did not believe in miracles. They did not believe in, in a hereafter, a, a heaven, and certainly they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Okay, And so that was some of the key characteristics of the Sadducees. They were and I'm not trying to stereotype every one of them. I'm sure there were good people that were in that group, all right, who loved God and knew God and so forth and so on. But just, again, generally speaking, Sadducees were very wealthy and they were somewhat uh, aloof or disconnected from uh, the common unwashed masses, all right? Now, let's skip the Pharisees because that's ultimately what we want to focus on. So let's jump over to the Essenes. Um, John the Baptist would have fallen into the category of an Essene. Okay, these were like the radical dudes. Okay, I mean this was your uh, this was your great grandmother who you know went to the Holy Roller Church. Okay, they they were they were extreme folks. They were wide open folks, and and you know, but also kind of disjointed and and, and disconnected. Now. Somewhere in the middle of those two, you had a group of, of men who were the Pharisees. And the Pharisees developed or came to exist, um, as a lot of movements do, uh, with a very noble purpose in mind. And that was they realized that, you know, in these two extreme groups, there's really no one who is taking the time to teach the Word of God to, uh, to the people so that the people can benefit from uh, the Word of God. And so the Pharisees, um, you know, took on that responsibility. Uh, they were uh, leaders and, you know, religiously minded, and, and, but yet they, they wanted the common man uh, to know what the Word of God said so that they could apply it to their lives and, and benefit uh, from a life of obeying God and being blessed by God by uh, fulfilling the commands of God. All right, now... The Pharisees also believed in miracles. They, they believed in, uh, you know, supernatural uh, uh, intervention from God. They also believed in the resurrection from the dead, with one exception. And this is very important, okay? Pharisees believed that a dead man or woman could be raised back to life as long as it was within a three-day window. If they were not raised back to life within three days and that fourth day came then they believed it was impossible for a person to be raised from the dead. Now, why is that important? Because if you remember, when they sent for Jesus to say that Lazarus was sick, Jesus did not go immediately. If you do the math, Lazarus was dead before Jesus could have gotten there if he had have left immediately. Okay, But what we see is that Jesus waited till what day? He waited to the fourth day to go and raise Lazarus from the dead. And he said what? With God, all things are possible. Doesn't matter if it's four days, five days, however many days. Uh, with God, all things are possible. Okay. So the Pharisees, <clears throat> again, um, 
started admirably enough in that they wanted to help the common people. They believed in supernatural intervention. They believed in miracles all the way up even to the resurrection of the dead. They believed in uh, life after death. Uh, and, and so that was where they started. But now by the time Jesus comes along, uh, these folks have become, at least for the most part, obviously Nicodemus is an exception and we see other exceptions in the Gospels. But for the most part, the Pharisees had become a very uh, religiously minded, religiously uh, enslaved uh, uh, group of men who were harsh, they were judgmental, they believed their righteousness was based upon their own performance. And so once they felt like they had mastered the, the, the laws in the Old Testament, they literally kept coming up with higher and higher bars uh, of obedience to, uh, to, to jump over so they could improve uh, their right standing with God. I mean, they even had specific ways that you wash your hands. It had to be like right hand over left hand or something to that effect. I don't, you know, you hear like the secret handshake. They had the secret hand, hand wash, okay? So this is Nicodemus. Remember, this means he would have been a man who had a heart for people. This would have been a man who believed in miracles. And so he comes to Jesus, but notice he comes at nighttime. He comes in secret. He comes basically when nobody else would notice him. Why is this? Because the Pharisees, for that matter, the entire Jewish religious establishment had said anyone who aligned with or connected with you know, hung out with Jesus, that they would be excommunicated. They would have been, um, you know, no longer considered welcome, put out of the temple, so to speak. Now, I'm spending too much time here, but I, again, I just think, you know, if, if I don't tell you this now, when will you ever hear it, okay? So a Pharisee would have been someone who was identified as a small child uh, and, and would have been groomed for this position. A Pharisee was... Um, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, a lawyer, a doctor, a, a, a priest, he, you know, the Pharisees, they were among the most educated people on earth, not just in the Jewish religion. Um, some Pharisees could not only quote the Old Testament frontwards, they could literally start at the end of the Old Testament and quote it backwards. I mean, this is how highly, highly educated and, and so... You know, I tell you that because I'm wanting you to understand what Nicodemus was risking by coming to talk to Jesus. I'm wanting you to see how much this meant to him and what he was putting on the line uh, just to come to Jesus and try to get some of these questions answered that, that were keeping him up at night, so to speak. All right. So are, are we still good? I've, I haven't put you to sleep with my... Uh, erstwhile ramblings about Pharisees and, and, and Judea, Judea. Okay, all right, sex of Judaism. Okay, now, so notice what he says. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs which you do unless God is with him. Now, a sign is something outward that you can see that's pointing to something that you can't see. All right? And it's important that he says, we know, which means Nicodemus is not the only one. Maybe he drew the short straw 
uh, or a group of Pharisees. But somehow he wound up being the single person that came to talk to Jesus. But he wasn't just there for himself. There were other Pharisees who had these same curiosities, had these same questions. And so he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Why is that important? Because the religious establishment was saying that Jesus was doing miracles, undeniable miracles, okay? But he was doing them by the power of the devil and not the power of God. Now, what does that say about um, the veracity, if you will, of Jesus' miracles? I mean, the people that Jesus healed weren't like people planted that weren't really blind. Are you following what I'm saying? These weren't, these weren't people who were like pretending to be crippled and Jesus brought them in from, you know, three towns over and, 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 and all of a sudden they were healed and it was, it was some kind of questionable thing. The miracles were undeniable. These were verifiable, measurable miracles. These were people, um, like for instance, the blind man that, that, that sat and, and begged, he would have had to apply for a permit to sit outside the temple and ask for alms uh, from the worshipers coming in. So in other words, it was undeniable miracles. It wasn't that the religious establishment said, oh, he's not really doing miracles. That's, he's just faking. No, they, it was undeniable that the miracles were real. So what did they choose to attack? They choose to, to, chose to attack the source of the miracles. In other words, by what power Jesus was performing the miracles. And so, but Nicodemus didn't buy into that. Um, I was told that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was of the devil. And I'll never forget the first time I actually saw some people being baptized in the Holy Spirit. I saw a group of teenagers baptized in the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in an unknown tongue. And as I sit there witnessing that, I didn't know exactly what I was seeing. But let me tell you what I absolutely knew. That was not the devil. That was not, that's God. If I've ever seen God do something in somebody's life, that's God at work right there. It's one of the most beautiful things I had ever seen up until that point in, in, in my walk with God. And I knew, listen, again, there was a lot about it I didn't understand. And by the way, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit later that same night and, and spoke in tongues for the first time that same night, okay? Uh, and, and I didn't understand it, but I knew what God had done for me. And I knew what he, what he had uh, blessed me with. Amen. And so that's basically where Nicodemus is coming from here. He's like, look, you know, this crazy, ludicrous, ridiculous argument that what you're doing is, is by the power of the devil. There's no way. You know, we, in other words, he saw God's hand in, in all of that. All right. He says, we know you're a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs which you do unless God is with him. All right. Now, this is important to understand some of the things that are going to develop as these verses unfold. Right. And one of them is Nicodemus is trying to figure out how to answer to how to ask a question here. Right. And, and if you read between the lines, what he's what he's really wanting to know is how is it that you're able to do these things? We know God's with you, but are you a prophet? Because remember, the Old Testament prophet model, like we talked about last week, was when God would specifically choose a person, put a portion or a measure of His Holy Spirit upon that person, and empower that person to do supernatural things. And so some of the debate among the people who didn't just write him off as, as a heretic or, or somebody operating by the power of the devil was, well, maybe he's a prophet, but... You know, usually when prophets come on the scene like this, there's this whole process and God makes it known and, and Jesus came out of nowhere, a carpenter in Nazareth, you know, questionable paternity, la la la, you know, all this, all this stuff, right? And so, so they, they don't really know what to say, 
All right. But, but if you look closely in all of this, Nicodemus is trying to figure out how to ask a question. Okay. And here's the beautiful thing about our Heavenly Father. He knows how to answer the question that you don't know how to ask. Okay. Now, notice what Jesus, so Jesus answered. Okay. He didn't just respond. He answered. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I, I would love to ask Nicodemus one day in heaven, um, sir, what, what, what first came to your mind when Jesus said that, that answer to you, right? I have this odd feeling. Now, listen, I would encourage you as you study the scriptures, the Holy Spirit was there when all this happened. And he's the Holy Spirit's in you right now. Okay, so I try to imagine these things. Now I don't know if this is the case, but I, I, no, this sounds odd. I, I picture them like sitting outside on a on a back veranda or something like that. I I, I think it's nighttime. I think they're outdoors. I, I, I picture them sitting at a table, uh, and it's just Jesus and Nicodemus as they're talking. Now that may not have been how this went down, but God gave us an imagination for a purpose. Amen. And let let the Holy Spirit, uh, because what happens is you begin to meditate on these things and imagine these things. All right, the Holy Spirit comes alongside and He begins to reveal things to you about all of this, nuances and thoughts and and, and, and things of that of that nature. Okay. And so I'm I don't, I'm not bragging when I say this, but I have spent a lot of time meditating. On, on these verses because they are so pivotal. They are so pivotal to, to who and what we are and who and what we've been given uh, today uh, because of this thing Jesus introduced to us here, uh, a second birth or a new birth, all right? So he says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, remember, in the King James is going to say something like verily, verily, or something along those lines. This is New King James Version here. And remember what I told you about most assuredly. Anytime Jesus says most assuredly, he is, he is going to say something that follows that is potentially going to sail over your head or seem very odd or very extreme or even beyond possibility to you. And so that's why he kind of gave the red flag of most assuredly, I know what I'm about to tell you, Nicodemus, isn't going to make a lot of sense to you and it's going to seem extreme to you and seem impossible to you. But what I'm telling you is for real. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. All right. Now, <clears throat> let's talk about the last thing first. He cannot see the kingdom of God. What is the question that Nicodemus has come to, to try and figure out? Where does he begin with this? Look, Rabbi, I know you're not doing this by the power of the devil. Um, God's got to be with you. But, you know, I believe. Remember now, he believed in miracles. If you believe in miracles, let me tell you what you want to do. You want to do miracles. I don't think I'm the only person in this room or watching online right now that would like to be used by God to work miracles for his glory in the lives of other people. This was a man who, who lived in a, in a day where medical science was, was very rudimentary. And people were sick and hurting and dying. And, 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 and very little medicine or, or you know, these, there's no antibiotics. There's, I'm, you know, I'm saying kids die from an ear infection and stuff like this. I mean, it, this was, you know, a, a rough day to live in. And, and so, you know, I believe he had such a hunger in his heart. I believe what he's really saying is, Jesus, how are you doing it? And, and could you show me how to do it? 
It wouldn't be the first, John the sixth chapter. We see a group of people who are like, okay, Jesus, if you're not going to do it for us, will you teach us how to do it? You know? uh, and, and matter of fact, if you teach us how to do it, we won't have to bother with you anymore. You know, it's kind of their, their mindset. So <clears throat> Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So what Jesus is in essence saying here is, Nicodemus, you don't understand how I'm doing this because you've never seen it done this way before. You've never read about it being done this way before. Because in the Old Testament, remember, God would work through a specially appointed, specially anointed man or woman that he put a portion of his spirit upon that then empowered that person to do miracles. This is not what's happening here. What, what Nicodemus is actually seeing is the kingdom government of God breaking through into the natural physical realm. In other words, Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, the miracles are being produced by my Father's kingdom that is now here upon the earth. Right? Now, unless one is born again, never see the kingdom. So Jesus is talking about being born a second time. Now, this obviously confuses Nicodemus like it still confuses a lot of people today. So Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered most assuredly, there it is again, okay? I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. All right? So I, I think I made this statement a moment ago. Let me go back to it, okay? And, and I was talking about just imagining all of this. Um, and I try to imagine the look on Nicodemus's face when Jesus first says to him, uh, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I got to believe for just at least a split second, Nicodemus felt a little panic kind of rise up in him. You know, um, have, have you ever um, have you ever like been having a conversation with somebody and maybe about five or ten minutes in the conversation, you realized that this person is needs some help, needs maybe like I'm not trying to be funny. They need some mental help or some psychological help, or whatever. You know, all of a sudden they, they start saying things that are like bizarre and like what in where is this coming from? What is that? Right. So I got to believe at some point, you know, Nicodemus, this little voice in the back of his head is going I told you not to come here. This man's a nut. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, because it seems so far-fetched, right? It seems so, so bizarre. Who's ever heard of such? You got to be born a second time? You got to be born again? You know, Nicodemus is like, how, how can a man, when he's full-grown, go back inside his mother's belly and be born a second time? Jesus pardon the expression, double down. Jesus didn't back down. He pushed it further. He said, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. So he goes from seeing it at work. So he's saying, if you're not born again, you'll be blinded to, to what's really producing these miracles, Nicodemus. And if you're not born again, you, can, you can't enter into it yourself. But what's the other side of that then? When we get to the new birth, we'll talk about this. As born-again men and women, we are now citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are ambassadors representing our homeland here upon the earth. Now, Nicodemus made a critical mistake, and it's a mistake that people continue to make throughout their Christian life 
today. For that matter, you don't have to be a Christian to make the same mistake. But the mistake that he made was he thought one-dimensionally even though he was a three-dimensional being. See, you are a spirit, you have a soul, you live in a body. You are a spirit, you have a soul, you live in a body. The real you is the born-again spirit deep inside of you. Spirit, soul is your mind, emotions, and will, the part of you that thinks, chooses, and feels. And all that's contained within a body, like a hand in a glove. Okay, we'll do four and a half, maybe five hours on spirit, soul, and body in the days to come. All right, so I'm just trying to give you a little quick overview here. So notice now, Nicodemus can't process what Jesus is saying because he's only thinking of himself as a physical or fleshly being. And so in order to be born a second time, Nicodemus is thinking that he's got to be born physically a second time. So what does Jesus say? Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. Now, I know a lot of people try to stretch this born of water. What does this mean? The water of the Word, all these other things. I don't mind you trying to, to shoehorn some other alternative explanations in or, or additional meanings in on this. But don't miss the simplistic thing of what Jesus is saying here. When you were born physically, you were born of water. When you were born, your mama's water broke, okay? And you were born physically of water. So Jesus says, unless one is born of water, that's birth number one, and the spirit, that's birth number two, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Okay, let me put, this, put it back up on uh, um, the overlay, screen overlay for those of you watching online. If you'll notice, that which is born of the spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, is spirit. So... To be born again means to be born from the incorruptible seed of the Word of God, to be born from above, to be born of God's Spirit. In the same way Jesus was supernaturally born from the womb of a virgin, right? We now are being born of the Spirit, born of uh, God's Holy Spirit. So, verse 7, you still with me? He says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Do not marvel. Well, <laughs> He was marveling, all right. I mean, he was like, what in the world? What is he saying? How can this be? Um, now, <clears throat> this is going to require some explanation. We'll come back to it. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 8 is a pivotal verse. It's not a riddle. Okay, we'll come back and explain it. All right. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot uh, tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? And again, uh, just pardon my vivid imagination. I believe at this point, Nicodemus is somewhat animated. Uh, I believe he's like maybe has, you know, either got to the edge of his seat or maybe even like stood up with his hands up in the air. It's like, how, how can these things be? Now, keep in mind, keep in mind, let's go back to it, all right? Not only does he care about people, not only is he interested in supernatural works of God, not only is he interested in trying to figure out how Jesus is doing what Jesus is doing, this is a very, very highly, highly educated man, okay? I mean, this guy can quote the Old Testament backwards, and now Jesus is, is basically saying things to him that he's like, where, where is this coming from? What do you mean by this? It, it, in other words, it's, it's, it, in some ways it's baffling a man who's not used to being baffled. All right? So Nicodemus is like, how can these things be? And so Jesus said, you know what, you're, you're right, Nicodemus, I'm sorry. Um, is that what he said? <laughs> no. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and don't know these things? 
What's, what's the implication here? What is he saying? He's saying, listen, you're a leader of God's people, and, and you have no idea what I'm talking about? You, you're a leader of God's people, and all you can think of is, is, is the outward man, the, 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 fleshly, the fleshly part of man? Does the Old Testament talk about the heart? Does the Old Testament talk about the spirit? Does the Old Testament talk about God looking at the, at the, at the heart and, and not the outward man? One of the greatest heroes in all of Israel, even to this day, is King David. And remember when he was chosen? What God told the prophet Samuel? He said, don't, don't you look at how tall they are, how handsome they are, how square their jaw is, right? He goes through every one of Jesse's sons and he says, listen, I, I know God told me one of your sons is to be the king of Israel, but, but I don't mean to hurt anybody's feelings, but it ain't none of these guys. Are there not any other sons? And Jesse's like, well, gosh, you know. Um, I mean, there's the youngest, but yeah, I mean, he's got long hair and plays the guitar. I mean, you know, I don't, <laughs> right? <laughs> Samuel said, bring him here. And lo and behold, there he is, next king of Israel, little kid. So what did God say? He said, I don't, I don't look at you know, one of them boys is going to look like a king to you, but I'm not looking at what he looks like on the outside. I'm looking at what he looks on the inside. So when Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel and don't know these things? You know, I, I believe, again, you know, Nicodemus get a little bit animated here. How, how, how can this be? You know, what are you talking about? And Jesus is like, are you, are you a teacher of God's people and you don't know these things? Most assuredly I say to you, stay with me now. Most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know. Now, again, notice the capital W there. We speak. Jesus said this. He said, I don't say anything unless my father tells me to say it. So the we here is at least Jesus and his father. I believe it's all three. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus was the word of God made flesh. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He was a living, breathing expression of the divine intelligence. The Holy Spirit is just as divine as God the Father and just as divine as the uncreated eternal Son of God. So he says, we speak. Jesus wasn't just, you know how sometimes people be falsely humble or, or humble either way, falsely or, or genuinely. And, and they say, well, you know, we did this, we did that. And, and, and really it wasn't no we involved. I mean, other than them maybe in God. Um, but that's not what Jesus is doing here. He says, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. And you do not receive our witness if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Now you talk about an educated man who is baffled now. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, he's like, what? Okay. Now, the point that we're here to make tonight, among others, is that God has an eternal plan for your life. And while the time that you spend on earth will be the briefest part of your eternal existence, it seems to me, at least from what we have revealed to us thus far from Scripture, is that it is the most pivotal, briefest but most pivotal, as far as the influence it will have on 
your eternity moving forward. Okay? That's important. I'm telling you that scare you, but I'm just telling you. All right? Um, this, this helps me. Chris, Chris Tomlin wrote a song. Um, I say this tongue-in-cheek. He must have heard my sermon when he wrote this song. But, um, you know, where he talks about that there's coming a day, you know, will we see God make it all new? And, of course, it says he will, if you've heard that song, okay? But listen to me, all right? This is how the Lord told me to say it many years ago. Things have not always been as they are right now, and things will not always be as they are right now. The season in which we exist, the season, the time in which we exist right now, okay, is among the most unique but also among the most significant time that we will ever exist. We see from both direct teaching from Jesus as well as multiple parables from Jesus that how we handle what we've been given during this time of our existence will have much to do with what we wind up receiving and being in charge of in the next life. Remember in one of those parables we see that the wise and faithful servants were rewarded with rulership over cities. Are you hearing me? Okay. You say, well, you know, Pastor Marcus, I'm not really worried about all that. You know, as long as I get in there, I don't care if it's by the skin of my teeth or the hair of my chinny chin chin. As long as I'm not in hell, I'm happy. Well, so you say that now, but it's really not. Are you hearing me? I'm, I, I, would, I would not be doing my job if I did not try to explain these things to you. Remember, your right standing with God is not based upon what you do for him, but your rewards are. Your rewards are. Okay, now, so every born-again believer has been called to do the work of the ministry. And Jesus ushered in a new model of ministry. John the Baptist, who was the forerunner for Jesus, not the same as John the Beloved. John the Baptist was actually a cousin to Jesus who was also supernaturally conceived. And he is the fulfillment of all the prophecies about Elijah coming first. John the Baptist was not actually Elijah, but the Bible says he went in the spirit of Elijah. And his assignment was to prepare the people, get the people ready to receive their king, to receive Jesus, the Messiah. And the Bible identifies him as the last of the Old Testament prophets. And we'll look at this in greater detail. But we see that um, if, if you can imagine like a fader, you know, so as, as, as John the Baptist's, uh, you know, he was bringing the lights down on one system as Jesus was bringing the lights up on another. Are you with me? All right. So we do not operate under the Old Testament model of Elijah, Elisha, uh, even for that matter, John the Baptist. We operate and minister under the New Testament model and example of Jesus. Okay? Remember, the Holy Spirit was given to those men and women uh, by measure. Elijah had a measure. Elisha asked for a double measure, a double portion. Sometimes I hear people say, I want a double portion. Listen, the Bible says that the Spirit was given to Jesus without measure. Without measure. All right, so it's a new day. And because it's a new day, it's a new way of ministering to people and bringing in fruit that glorifies our Father. 
And Jesus is spelling so much of that, that out for us. Now, let's go. Um, oh, thank you, Jesus. Let's go to verse 8. Verse number 8, all right? Remember this one that Jesus said, uh, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So <clears throat> there's, again, there's so much here. Is everybody good? Everybody okay? I, man, I, this, I, know, I know it sounds so odd, but to me, there's so much that the Lord has taught me from this over the years, and I get I get jazzed about this, man. I mean, there I love all these classes, but there are certain classes, man. I I'm like, oh, can't wait to get that one. Can't wait to get to that one, right? You know, and and that's this is one of those, okay? Because you know what Jesus revealed to us here, and the and the precedent that he established here, but then also what he said, what he said here. You know, if if you watch uh, somebody doing some type of of dangerous stunt on television. You know, at some point they're going to put a camera in the announcer's face and he's going to say something like, you know, don't try this at home. You know what I'm saying? And a lot of people look at, you know, marvel at what Jesus did, but somehow they think he said, don't try this at home. But nothing could, could be further from the truth. We see that, that really with the exception of being nailed to the cross, okay, for all of the sins of humanity... Uh, basically, everything else that Jesus did, he welcomed and invited other people in to doing that with him. Amen. Because he was here to, to, to not just empower us to do it, but he was also here to, to teach us and train us and show us how to do it. So when he says, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit, notice now he says, you'll never see the kingdom. You'll never see the kingdom unless you're born again. You can't enter the kingdom unless you're born again. But if, and to be born again is not to be born again of the flesh, but it's to be born again of the spirit. And everyone who is born of the spirit qualifies for whatever he's talking about here in John chapter three, verse eight. So let me say it another way. If you've been born again, Jesus is talking to you in verse number eight. So what is he saying? It's a very important question. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So if I'm sitting in uh, my living room at, at the house and I look outside and I see a limb on the oak tree uh, outside, you know, moving like this, or I see the whole tree moving back and forth like this, I don't jump up and run outside to see if there's an elephant somehow gotten loose from the Birmingham Zoo banging his head against that tree. If I see the tree moving, what do I instinctively know is happening? The wind is blowing. Can I see the wind? No, I can't see the wind. The wind is invisible. But can I see the effect the wind is having on the tree? Yes, because the tree moving and the leaves on the tree moving, listen very carefully now, they are a visible sign coming from an invisible source. Something that I can see is being produced from something that I cannot see. Something that is happening in front of my eyes is happening because of something I can't see that's causing it to happen. 
So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. When Nicodemus saw Jesus heal people that he knew were sick, he was at the hospital when they had that chariot accident and were pronounced paralyzed from the neck down. And now Jesus has just raised them up and they're walking again. He was there when those parents wept bitterly and because their child was born without eyeballs. And now, not only can their child see, their child has eyeballs where there was once sockets in their head. Nicodemus is watching this, and he knows this is not the work of Satan. He knows that this is the work of God. But for the life of him, he can't figure out by what means Jesus is producing these results. Jesus says, you'll never see it because it's the kingdom of God, and the only way you'll see the kingdom is if you are born again. Again, And the only way you can be a part of this and enter into the kingdom is if you're born again. And everyone who is born again, again can do exactly what I am doing. Everyone who is born of the Spirit is able to produce visible signs from an invisible source inside of them. That stirs me up right there, man. Now, let's tackle this next one. All right, that's verse 13. Verse 13. No one has ascended. To ascend means to go up. No one has ascended to heaven, but he, capital H, this is speaking of Jesus, he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Now, to really grasp what Jesus is saying and why he said it this way, we need to go back to the two verses leading up to verse 13, that would be, uh, well, let's go to, uh, well, ver I put 10, let me put 10, 11, and 12 on the screen. Look at what he says in uh, verse 11, most assuredly. So again, remember, he's about to say something that's going to be seemingly far-fetched or far out, but it's 100% true. I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Jesus is being polite here, but can I tell you, basically, can I give you the New Winslet International translation of what Jesus just said to Nicodemus? Nicodemus, you've listened to me speak many times and you've yet to believe a word that's come out of my mouth. I've seen you standing over there looking at me, taking notes and you know, while your buddies are trying to figure out some way to get rid of me and some way to embarrass me publicly or ask me some question that can't be answered. You've been there and you've heard me speak and you've heard me speak many times and everything that you've heard me say have, have been things that I know that we know. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That we know and we testify what we have seen. See, th Jesus is, is, he's not mincing words here. This isn't a theory. This isn't some philosophy. This is reality. But it's a spiritual unseen reality. It's what Jesus can see. It's what Jesus knows that people on the earth can't see and don't know. And what is his assignment? His assignment is to bring the invisible hidden wisdom of God from heaven down to the earth and present it to you and me in a way that we can receive it and apply it to our own lives and benefit from it. Right? So this is... take. Take that thought now. He says, I'm telling you what I know. I'm telling you what I've seen. And you have not received our witness. You haven't received it. Jury's still out was, was the way we might say it as far as Nicodemus was concerned. 
He's still trying to figure it out. He still hadn't settled it. Now we're going to see later in, in, the, in the Gospels that he does settle it. And, and, he, and he received Jesus as the Messiah. Okay, But at this point, he's still not sure about these things. Now, verse 12. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Okay? Now, on Monday mornings, we've been talking a little bit about parables. I think some of you are in, in that class, okay? Jesus always used a parable when he spoke to the multitudes. And a parable, if you will, think come parable. Jesus would find something on the earth, some story he could tell about a man who planted seed, about uh, a, a, a farmer who had uh, vandals plant, you know, uh, weeds in with his wheat, um, a woman who uh, had some coins and lost one. Uh, all these men who had two sons, parable of the restored son, we know him as the prodigal son. All these stories that Jesus um, would tell. And because Jesus traveled a lot, I believe he told some of the same stories over and over again. All right? And Jesus would tell those stories because he's trying to find something of earth, some, as he said here, if I've told you earthly things, he's trying to find something that people could understand and relate to from their uh, life experience, okay, that would help them get close enough to the wisdom of God that was that parable contained that they could, you know, make the leap of faith, so to speak, and, and embrace that wisdom from God. So Jesus would present the wisdom of God to people by using things they could relate to and understand to communicate that wisdom to them. Are you with me still? Okay. So again, let me try to give you a, a, a paraphrase or um, a, uh, not trying to be funny, but this is if I ever did a translation of the Bible, this is basically how this would read, okay? Nicodemus, up until this point, everything I've told you from my Father in heaven, I've used something on this earth that you could relate to to understand it. Okay, you follow me? He says, and you haven't believed anything I've said up to this point. So if you will not believe when I tell you something from my world by using something from your world to compare it to, how will you ever believe if I tell you something from my world that there is nothing in your world to compare it to? See, that's the part that sometimes I think we, we uh, misunderstand is that everything that God knows and understands can somehow be illustrated with a simple story. And so this is what he says. He's about to tell him something that there's nothing, there's no story about a man who planted something to, to help him even get close to understanding this. Are you ready? What does he say? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. What in the world is he talking about here? Now, what was the mistake I told you Nicodemus made initially? Thinking one-dimensionally, right? Can I tell you what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, Nicodemus, you see me here, 
on the earth. But while I'm here on the earth, I'm also in heaven at the same time. So you see me here and I'm here. But while I'm here, I'm there. And while I'm there, I'm here. <laughs> Let me see if I can make it a little easier for you. He said, Nicodemus, I got heaven by one hand and I've got the earth by the other. I'm touching two worlds at the same time, sir. And what you're seeing me do on this earth as a man, I'm doing because my Father's kingdom is flowing through me into the earth. That's the power that's healing these crippled people. That's the power that's restoring sound and, and sight to the deaf and to the blind. That's the power. That's all the way back to the first question, right? I know you're a man from God because no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus, well, let's just cut to the chase here, Nicodemus, okay? Let me tell you how I'm doing it. Now, this unique position that Jesus found himself in just so happens to be the same unique position that every born-again believer living on planet Earth is in today. We are here, but while we are here, we are there. And while we are there, we are here. Jesus was in a unique position to touch heaven and earth at the same time. Our salvation has now placed us in that same position. Now, we live in a day and age where people think of salvation only as a means of getting into heaven one day when they die. Am I, am I right about this? It's like, well, you know, that's, um, I've been asking a question on Wednesday nights. We're going to ask it again in the, main, in the service that follows this one. We're going to ask it again tonight, okay? What does the average Christian expect from their salvation experience? Okay. <laughs> and uh, I, think, I think it's kind of basically two things, okay? They expect to be forgiven for their sins, and they expect to, you know, hopefully go to heaven when we die. And, you know, but we don't want to go now. That, again, it's like, you know, we want to heaven, but not till we're like 115 years old. And, uh, you know, I think I've said this here before. You know, I, I used to pray that God wouldn't come back before I got my driver's license. I'm like, Jesus, look, I know you're coming back. But just, you know, then I got my driver's license and I'm like, well, you know, I'd like to get graduate high school. You know, it'd be so cool not to have to go to high school anymore. You know, then I was like, oh, Lord, just let me get married. You know, then I got married. It's like, oh, Lord, don't come back before I have a kid, you know, me and Pam. So, so you know, I mean, again, it's, you know, we, I'm just being real with you, all right? So um, what if I was to tell you your salvation was not just about getting you into heaven, but it was about getting heaven into you so God could then get heaven into the earth? What did Jesus teach us to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Come on now, on earth as it is in heaven. That's the battle cry, I believe, of every born-again believer. One of the greatest, as far as a concise um, explanation, dissertation of our salvation is found in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. Some of you are familiar with for... By grace we're saved through faith, that not of yourselves, the gift of God, okay, unless any man should boast. But look at, look at verses um, 4 
5 and 6, if you would please. But God, who was rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Just curious, anybody in here ever paid attention to that verse before? I'm not trying to embarrass anybody. I'm just curious. See, again, I, you know, I feel compelled to apologize for whatever church and pastor that you were raised up under. And I'm not trying to be funny. I'm not trying to be a smart aleck. I'm literally, I, I know it's, you know, I just, um, it, it, see, there, there are those of you in this room, you were raised in church. And nobody ever told you this. Nobody ever explaining this to you. See, listen to me. If you're born again, you're already in heaven. <laughs> you're seated there with Jesus in heavenly places far above all principality, power, and might, and dominion. Every name is named. You go, no, 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 Pastor, I'm here. So you're thinking one dimensionally again. You're thinking one dimensionally again. Your salvation was not, not just about getting you into heaven, but it was about getting heaven into you. There are, there are some things that just, um, <clears throat> as strong as anything in my life has ever just churned and percolated and inside of me and it's and it's not letting up i mean it's it's just getting stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and it's what we see in the book of philemon where we're told to acknowledge every good thing that's in us acknowledge every good thing that's in us how many good things in us have we acknowledged how many good things in us because of our new birth are we even aware of? Do we even know about every good thing he says that's in you? It needs to be acknowledged. And, and yet we, we tend to think in terms of, well, you know, it's just, you know, we've been saved. We got saved. You know, got sins forgiven. No, listen to me. It's more than sins forgiven. It's sins taken away. Never to be held against you ever again. Saved to the uttermost, completely, entirely, thoroughly, wholly, forever is what it means saved to the uttermost. A new spirit in you and then your new spirit and God's spirit become one spirit. The, the realities of the new birth and yet, how can we acknowledge something that we've never even heard anything about? We, we need to start acknowledging that we are seated together with Jesus in heavenly places. Why is that? Because that's the place from which Jesus ministered. Are you with me? You, you remember, and it was, a, it was a beautiful, wonderful, again, Milestone moment, pivotal moment. Peter and John. 
time to go to church and let's worship the Lord. Let's, let's pray. Let's hear, hear the word, right? Guy, they had passed time and time again. Ask them. Crippled, right? Ask them you know, for some money. I hear people say all the time they were broke. If you, if you look at how that's really translated, they're basically saying, I, don't, I left my wallet at home. But, but what do they say? They said, such as we have. See, they recognized that, that they had been given something. They acknowledged that they had something in them that would help him. Now, later they explain it. Because people were like, what have y'all done? It's, y'all, we didn't do this. It was, it was his name and through faith in his name. It's, it's whose I am and whose I serve. He's in me. He put his name in me. See, they acknowledged that we have a treasure in an earthen vessel. This flesh is an earthen vessel. But God's put a treasure in this earthen vessel. It's not just about getting you into heaven. It's amazing to me how so many folks, they think that's that's the goal of the Christian life, to make it to heaven. My friend, heaven's your reward. Jesus is your goal. Doing the works of Jesus. I mean, I'm not trying to freak you out, but you're already there. The ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation. We've got about 25 minutes. The ministry of reconciliation. Dr. Neil Anderson, um, he's written several books. And this is one of my favorite quotes from him. He says, God has a one-item agenda that can be expressed in one word. Reconciliation. Reconciliation. You say, well, wow, that's, that's pretty strong. That's pretty bold, Pastor Mark. If you put it up there, that, that means you must agree with that. Well, if you understand what reconciliation is and how it relates to discipleship, Reconciliation is about the reestablishment of a close relationship. So if a husband and wife, for whatever reason, have become separated and they work through their differences and they come back together, we say what they reconciled. So reconciliation is the reestablishment of a close relationship. Not just the establishment of a close relationship, but the reestablishment of one that that previously existed. You say, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. how can I then be reconciled to God? Does that mean I backslide and come back to Him? No, see, before you were born, you were already established in a close relationship with Him. You came forth from Him. You were in His heart before you were in your mother's womb. And we all sinned. We all were born of corrupted seed. We were all born into sin. I, I like to simplify this one item agenda expressed in one word, reconciliation. I like to say it this way. You ready? Daddy wants his kids back. Father wants his kids back. Amen. He wants us back and was willing to pay a very, very high price for that to happen. All right, go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5. There are people who ask me, um, especially people who uh, were a part of this class um, many years ago, uh, they ask me, how has this class changed over the years? And obviously it changes. It's different this year than it was last year. Um, and I like to think that's for a lot of reasons. One, God is, God is fresh. There's no searching His understanding. His, his wisdom is multi-layered. But also like to think that, you know, I'm learning more. I'm growing. And so to give you some idea, class one used to begin with, take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Okay, so now here we are, class number six, almost, you know, through with it, class number six, and we're finally getting there, okay? Now, Pam and I have um, a very simple approach to life, okay? We, we want to do God's thing, we want to do it God's way, and we want to expect God's results, and one of my favorite Bible teachers, Keith Moore, he says, do you know what you need in order for something to be scriptural? Anybody want to guess what you got to have for something to be scriptural? Scripture. you got to have some scripture. Okay. And so when we talk about discipleship class, but remember the full name of this class is Discipleship Counselor Training Class. These classes are taught from the perspective of equipping you to be more effective in the ministry that God has put you on this earth to fulfill and accomplish, okay? And when we talk about discipleship counseling and what that is and what that looks like, it's like, okay, well, show me those words in the Bible. Well, we won't necessarily find those particular words in the Bible. We'll find counsel in the Bible. We'll find disciple in the Bible, okay? But the concept of the ministry of reconciliation basically is the concept of a discipleship counselor. Now, what we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we could look at a broader uh, piece of, of these writings, but we're going to look at verses 14 through 21. And what we have in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21, is the crossroads of many important doctrines. All right, now I'm not trying to get fancy on you using that word doctrines, but a doctrine is simply a system of teaching. So um, you have the doctrine of righteousness by faith, and that would be the, the, all the teaching that's, uh, you know, from the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, that, um, that you know, refer to and talk about um, this uh, truth idea of, of what it means to be right with God by faith as opposed to right with God by works, okay? Um, the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, again, it's, it's there in Scripture, the, the, the teaching. So a doctrine is a, is a, is a system of teaching. It's, it's, it's a position. If you've ever heard, like, for instance, um, at 9-11, uh, when the terrorists attacked um, our, our country and the trade centers and, and the Pentagon and, um, and what have you, the, 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 the one that was crashed in the, in the, in the field there. Um, from that came something known as the Bush Doctrine. And I'm not going to try to give you the entire Bush Doctrine, but basically you may remember these words, okay? Any, any terrorist any state that harbors terrorists, any state that cooperates with terrorists. In other words, he just laid it all out there, okay? We're not tolerating terrorism anymore, and we're coming after you. 
and, and, and you heard people refer to that as the Bush Doctrine, it's because that was, that was his position and, and response to what happened to, in this country on 9-11, uh, was it 2001 now, right? Man, it's been a long time ago. All right. So I tell you that just because I'm trying to help you understand what doctrine is. We're not talking about my doctrine or Southern Baptist doctrine or Pentecostal Assembly of God doctrine. We're talking about God's doctrine. In other words, that, when we say Bush doctrine, that was Mr. Bush's position, President Bush's position, okay? So we want God's position on these things, right? So when we say the crossroads of many important doctrines, there are several very key things that pertain to our salvation, that pertain to our God-given purpose, that pertain to our identity, that pertain to our equipping, that pertain to our new birth. That, that, it's just so many different things that we see in a concise, condensed form all intersecting in these, um, what is it, eight verses here. Okay? So let's, um, let's dive in. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 14. It says, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him thus no longer. All right. Now, we're going to push on through because we, you know, we took a few minutes at the, at the beginning. We started a little later tonight trying to give some folks an opportunity to get here. And um, I really would like to start fresh on, on, on these uh, because it's, uh, again, but the Holy Spirit's helping us. Amen. So let me push a little further, and then we'll jump back in here uh, first thing uh, next class, okay? When he says the love of Christ compels us, if, if you're reading this in the King James Version, the word compels means constrains. Compels, or I say means, it's translated constrained or constraineth, all right? So what is the Holy Spirit saying uh, to us through the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul, in essence, is saying his understanding, what's been revealed to him about the love of God, has left him no other option but to do what it is that he's doing in life. He's not being motivated by a promise of reward. He's not necessarily being motivated by promise of reward. He's not being motivated by a threat of punishment. You know, all these things that are obviously there in the Scriptures for us. But the Apostle Paul is saying, look, I, I have come to a deep spiritual understanding of the love that God has for me personally. And the more I understand the love that He has for me as an individual person, I now understand that He has that same love for every other human being on planet Earth. And the love that God has for me, translated into the love that God has for everyone else, has left me no other option but to do what it is that I'm doing with my life. Okay, so it was love that compelled him. It was love that constrained is a stronger word than compel. Now here's one of the ways that I illustrate constraineth or compel. Um, in recent years, and when I say recent years, you could probably say recent decades now, okay, um, 
bowling alleys have this thing for children where you can push a button and bumpers come up on the sides of the alley and they make it impossible for the kid to roll a gutter ball. If the ball goes towards the gutter, it bounces off the bumper and it may bounce two or three times before it ultimately hits the pins, okay? But that bowling ball is compelled towards those pins. It is constrained from veering off course and is held on a straight and narrow pathway to its destination because something is constraining it from winding up in the gutter again. Paul is saying it's not, it's, it's not all these things that people talk about, fear and threat. and all. No, no. He said none of that. He said the one thing that keeps me true to my calling, the one thing that keeps me on course and, and, and headed towards uh, the fulfillment of my destination is an understanding of the love that God has for me and the love that God has for other people. That's what compelled him. That's what constrained him. And so please hear me. What we do for God must be done from a heart of love for him and for people that he loves. Are you hearing me? This is so, so critically important. If, if we miss this part, if we miss this part, it's going to undermine any other effort that we try. Uh, you know, people who, you know, think about other motives why people do things for God. To be seen, you know, to, to impress other people, so forth. So No, no, see, none of that. It was the love that constrained him, that compelled him. Now, when he says, because we judge thus, um, judge here doesn't mean like wagging a finger at somebody. This means we've come to the conclusion, we've reached this determination, okay, that if one, notice it's a capital O there, speaking of Jesus, if one died for all, then all died. So here is... Another very important doctrine that's brought up on the table uh, as we're progressing through these verses. And this doctrine is, of course, the substitutionary work of Jesus. What Jesus did on this earth, He did for you, He did as you. This is why the Apostle Paul said, I was crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. This is why we see in Romans 6 that when Jesus was buried, we were buried with Him. When He was raised up, we were raised up with Him. It's talking about what Jesus did for you as you and identifying with the completed work of Jesus. And so Paul says, bringing into the discussion, into the points that he's making here, this second very important doctrine, if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Man, there's something about that right there. Uh, if, you're, if you're awake and listening to me, that man, that's... Whew. I mean, that'll, that'll touch something on the inside of you right there. Amen? That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. So this brings us back to the three-dimensional truths that we see in the Scriptures. You are a spirit. You have a soul. You live in a body. What is he saying? He's saying we are not going to determine a person's worth or a person's potential based upon what we see them do or how we see them behave or are based upon how they look or appear to us. Why is that the case? I'll tell you why that's the case. Because the outward part of a person cannot tell the whole story of their inward part. And notice who he uses as an example here. He said, we knew Jesus according to the flesh. But boy, we know him thus no longer. What is he saying? 
He's saying, man, we, we first looked at Jesus, you know, he just looked like everybody else. You, you first glance, you don't realize who he is and what's in him and what uh, ability he has and what potential he has and what a, a power he has and what authority he has and what wisdom he has and what love he has. All of these beautiful characteristics of Jesus, you, you couldn't discern or distinguish all of that by just looking at, you know, at him outwardly. There was more to Jesus than met the eye, and there's more to you than meets the eye. There's more in you than this world or anybody on this planet has ever seen. You have potential that has yet to be tapped into. You have ability and capability that has yet to be released. New birth realities inside you right now, heaven in you right now, that has, has yet to come to the surface in your life and make a difference in your life and in the life of somebody else. And so Paul is saying what? Remember now, this has to do with ministry. And these are, these are fundamental principles, fundamental doctrines that all in, you know, in and of themselves are all very important and, and, and deserve, and we will talk about them as we work our, our way through you know, the next 30 classes, okay? But what, what Paul is saying here is, is that these are all factors that motivate, enable, empower, equip us to make a difference in this world for our Father's glory. And so he didn't, he didn't judge people based upon how they looked, how they dressed, how they smelled, how they behaved, wh where they had been, where they were going, how much money they had, how much they didn't have. None of that, right? He looked at them as one that Jesus had died for and that was loved by God the Father just as much as Jesus was loved by Him. Now here is the... Here's the John 3.16, if you will, of this, of this section, okay, and we didn't go all the way to 16, we stopped at 13 in that other one, but anybody ever heard this verse? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Yeah? Anybody? Um, we talk sometimes about these, you know, verses that your grandmother cross-stitched or, um, you know, had a home interior plaque, you know, hanging over the living room sofa or... or you know, some, uh, some cheesy picture, you know, I'm just kidding, you know, got these, this verse on it. But, but this, this is a, a in, in my uh, humble estimation, you know, it's, it's right there with John 3.16 and what it's revealing to us. That if, if you're in Christ, uh, you're a new creation. And the old things have passed away and a few things have become new. Is that what it says? Most things have become new. Is that what it says? No, it's all things have become new. And not only have all things become new, he says now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made, or we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Wow. So, if, um, if, you, if you take the concept of, um, you know, 
you and your family of six just put a week's worth of luggage in the trunk of a Buick and are headed towards the mountains for a week, okay? <laughs> Anybody ever, <laughs> it's like, you know, your neighbor comes out to, you know, laugh at you. It's like, there's no way you're getting all that in that trunk, right? You know, um, it's packed, right? I mean, it's like you get the kid set up on the trunk, you know, try to get it, get it latched, okay? Um, the, these eight verses or so here, they're like that. They are packed, man. I mean, there is so much that's being said here. We're not going to do it. I, 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 anyway, just the sense I get from the Holy Spirit now, we're not going to do it. But we, we could spend three weeks and, and really not even fully go into everything that he's saying here. Um, what we're going to choose to do instead is we're going to comment on, on some of the key things uh, and then we'll reference back to them as we work our way through. Because a lot, you know, like for instance, the new creation part, all things uh, become new, all things are of God. We'll cover that in great detail when we get to the part about um, the, uh, the new birth. Um, let me, um, thank you, Jesus. Let me give you these same verses in the Passion Translation. Same verses in the Passion Translation, all right? And uh, see, see if this maybe speaks to you on a little different level, all right? For it is Christ's love that fuels our passion and motivates us because we are absolutely convinced that He has given His life for all of us. This means all died with Him so that those who live should no longer live self-absorbed lives, but lives that are poured out for Him, the one who died for us and now lives again. So then, from now on, we have a new perspective that refuses to evaluate people merely by their outward appearances. For that's how we once viewed the Anointed One, but no longer do we see Him with limited human insight. Now, if anyone is enfolded into Christ, he has become an entirely new creation. All that is related to the old order has vanished. Behold, everything is fresh and new. And God has made all things new and reconciled us to himself and given us the ministry of reconciling others to God. In other words, it was through the anointed one that God was shepherding the world, not even keeping records of their transgressions, and he has entrusted to us the ministry of opening the door of reconciliation to God. We are ambassadors of the anointed one who carry the message of Christ to the world, as though God were tenderly pleading with them directly through our lips. So we tenderly plead with you on Christ's behalf, turn back to God, and be reconciled to Him. For God made the only one who did not know sin to become sin for us, so that we who did not know righteousness might become the righteousness of God through our union with Him. Wow. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for this time together this evening. I thank you, Lord, for the things that you were speaking deeply into our hearts, Lord. I thank you for ready hearts. Lord, that, that walked into this room, that, that sat down in front of a computer screen or a television screen or a, or a tablet or, or whatever the case may be, Lord, to, to watch this class. Lord, they, they showed up tonight, Lord, with a ready heart 
to hear and to receive, Lord, with meekness, your engrafted word, Lord, that is renewing our minds and transforming our lives. Father, I thank you that you have planted truth in our inward parts tonight. And Father, I thank you that the word, the seed of your word that's been planted in our hearts, Lord, it has been understood with the help of your Holy Spirit, and it will not be stolen, Lord, by your enemy and by our enemy, the devil. We take authority over him. We bind him and we rebuke him, seated together with you, Jesus, and in your name, we command him to take his junk and go. Lord, I thank you that you are shining your light on his lies in our lives and in our hearts. And Lord, they are being illuminated and they are being removed, Father, one by one by the truth of your word. I thank you, Father God, tonight that this moment, Lord, uh, the time that we have spent together during this class, Father, has been a milestone moment for many, many people, Lord, where uh, uh, an insight, Lord, in, into uh, the, the fathoms and the depths, Lord, of your power and of your love and of your potential in us and what you've called us to do. And, and, and Lord, that our salvation is more than just being forgiven for sin so we might get to go to heaven one day, Lord. But you have called us, Lord, to something bigger than ourselves. You've empowered us with the very power of, 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 of God himself, Lord. And I thank you that you are using us and you are, you are operating through us in ways that, that only you can to bring glory to your name. Now, Father, I thank you that dreams are being raised from the dead, Lord. Dreams are being resurrected in the hearts of your precious people, Lord. I thank you, Father, that, that new insights and new visions, Lord, are being birthed, Lord, in the men and women that are participating in these classes. And I thank you, Father, that you put greatness in us and you were calling forth greatness from us all, Lord, for your glory. We know that your desire is to put us on a pedestal. Lord, you would not have others put us on a pedestal, and you'd certainly not have us put ourselves on a pedestal. But, Lord, you said no one lights a candle and puts it under a basket, but sits it on a lampstand so that all in its presence can benefit from the light shining through it. So, Father, our prayer is that we let our lights so shine before men, that they see our good works and glorify you, Father, in heaven. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 And amen. You be blessed tonight. Thank you so much for being here. Um, man, how it encourages me to see so many people hungry for the things of God. There have been times in my life where the devil used to tell me that nobody cares about this stuff anymore. But uh, you are living proof that that is uh, a lie from the devil. So thank you. Thank you for being willing to learn and grow so that you can make a difference for our Father's glory and somebody else's benefit. We love you. Good things coming. And uh, we'll see you, if not before next.